Welcome back to another episode of The Deep Sea with Dr. Donna Lee. This is a bi-weekly podcast where we use sociological frameworks to unpack contemporary issues and current events and ask ourselves some big why questions like why the hell are we the way we are? And then we use those answers to think about the big how questions. How do we change ourselves and how do we change the world that we live in? Welcome back. I'm glad that you're here. I'm thankful to our audience that keeps growing and rocking with us. We're three episodes in. And before we get started on today's episode topic, which I know is going to be good, we're going to talk a little bit about the answer to last episode's deep dive question, which was, who do you think you are? Why? Why do I drag myself with these questions? I'm sorry, y'all, for the dragon that I give y'all, but I was really gathering myself as I thought about this question because for me, it was a little easier to start off with the negative, I guess, right? Who do I think I'm not? And that led me to affirming certain things that I think I am. One of the things that I have been working through to do this podcast is addressing whether or not I think I'm capable And that was one of the things I said. Now, I'll be clear, I immediately bypassed the stuff about my career and like those types of things because, you know, a couple of years of cognitive behavioral therapy have let me know that I don't want to identify myself with that. So I immediately went to the kind of character traits that I want to embody. And capable was the one word that kept on coming back to me in that I, I, if I really believe that about myself, then how am I showing up like someone who's capable? So hopefully you all recognize the growth as each episode I get more comfortable And also more confident in the fact that I am capable of doing this, of communicating my ideas in this platform and in a new way. All right. So with that said, I hope you answered the question. If you have, share with us on our socials. I want to know what you thought about it. I want to know how it helped you to better understand yourself. Or if you hated it, just tell me what you think. Trust me, I want to know. We want to hear about it at the deep sea. Now let's get into what we're going to talk about in this episode. Now, of course, it's February, and so it is Black History Month, and we will be celebrating that each and every single day because we believe that Blackness is something that deserves to be front stage and championed and celebrated 365, 24-7, and we're going to add that leap year day in this year, too, because we get an extra day in February to act Blacker than Black. But we Blackity Black all the time over here, but we thought perhaps in February we might be able to think about culture through the lens of Blackness. Now, this episode is going to be a little more unconventional because we're going to talk about culture through work. And we'll really be centering the experiences of Black women work through the idea of workplace culture. Now, talking about Black women and workplace culture might not seem exactly on par for Black History Month, but trust me, it's absolutely necessary because the news cycle has already moved on from two stories that I am still haunted by. And I think they deserve a bit more time and consideration on our part, especially in this Black History Month, when we think about how far we've come and how far we yet have to go. Now, the two stories I'm referencing are of Dr. Claudine Gay's resignation from Harvard University after a very short tenure as president and trigger warning, the very sad and unfortunate suicide of Antoinette Candia Bailey, who served as vice president of student affairs at Lincoln University at Missouri. 
those stories have sat with me, even though the news cycle has moved on to other things, precisely because I think they bring up something that we don't talk too much about and we need to talk more about the experiences that Black women have at work and how we can actually use that as a measure of racial progress in this country and progress on the other oppressions that we seem to think that we've made great leaps and bounds on eradicating. Throughout the episode, you'll hear Black women tell us their own experiences, and we'll use it all to think about these big questions. How does work affect us? What are some ways that we need to transform our ideas and beliefs around work so that we can show up fully as our authentic selves and experience the equitable kind of workplaces and workspaces that we truly want to be a part of? Let's go deep sea diving into work-ish. If I could describe workplace culture. Respectful. Professional. Underpaid. Okay. Understaffed. Fun. Gaslighting eye-opening, soul-sucking, bland, toxic, and unnecessarily necessary. The first idea I want to toss around with you all is about workplace culture. So for us to understand that, we're going to unpack first what work is, then we're going to think about culture, and then we're going to put it together to consider how we all experience workplace culture on a daily basis if you are someone that has a job and has to go into work on any level. Most of us have an understanding of work that's probably like this. It's activities, tasks, and skills that we use to produce a good or a service. Some of that work is paid, some of it is unpaid. For this episode, when I'm talking about work, I'm primarily thinking about the ways that we are compensated for our labor, for the time that we spend as an employee. But I also want us to recognize that it isn't just understanding work, it's understanding what culture is and how it influences work. Culture refers to many different things for us. It's music, it's art, it's fashion, it's holidays and celebrations, it's a ritual like graduation, it's a symbol like an emoji, it's so many different things. But you can think about it more broadly as the products of people. What do we do? How do we do it? How do we make sense of why we do it that way? I wanna make sure we understand that workplace culture is about our beliefs our assumptions, the ideas we hold to be true, and the things we value about work. Let's make that concrete. So for example, I think we all, despite our industries, have very specific ideas about how we're supposed to show up at work. Ideas about what is appropriate to wear, ideas about how you conduct yourself in a meeting or an email, ideas about how you talk to and engage with your coworkers. I mean, that's all that HR is, is enforcing those rules of how we engage with each other. And that's workplace culture. An example of thinking about workplace culture. How do I talk at work? I've already shared with you all that sometimes I get really down on myself because I don't think I'm articulating my, my ideas in the best way possible. And I realize that's part of my workplace culture because the assumption is I'm supposed to be smart. And smart people have subject and verb agreement. Smart people don't use abonics. But guess what? When I'm in the classroom and even in this space, I'm going to go in and out of whatever feels comfortable for me, even if that may not be deemed appropriate. I also recognize that when I show up at a conference, I'm a little less comfortable going in and out of my abonics because I've got a lot more eyes on me and I'm concerned about the perception on a larger level. I just saw a social media post where somebody said that they responded to someone sharing their ideas in a Zoom meeting and said, let her cook. And then they got promptly called up to HR because that's slang that 
<laughs> conventional workspaces don't understand. And here's the thing, the elephant in the room that we want to talk about here, that much of workplace culture standards, much of what we think about as professionalism is white supremacy culture by another name. It means that much of how we organize and think about work has been dependent on the way that whites are the standard for us or whites have been standardized. So workplace culture is another way to inflict violence on marginalized people and people of culture. I was scrolling on social media the other day and I came across a CEO. I won't, I don't remember their name in particular. I think it's like Tim something. But one of the things he said was workers have forgotten, employees have forgotten that they work for people. They work for employers and employers get to set the tone and tell you what to do. And that's the order that we have to reestablish. No, the hell we don't. Now, I'm naming white supremacy culture as one of the big bad wolves, because if we pay attention to what we complain about when it concerns work, what we're saying is white supremacy culture and its principles should not be the way we organize spaces for people to work. And it actually takes us away from the innovation and imagination and creativity that we want to invite people to do through their work. What are some of those principles? Let's unpack them quickly. And I'll provide in the show notes the article that I'm pulling from for those of you that want to explore these ideas a little bit more deeper and apply them to your own workspaces. One of them that we'll talk about a little bit more deeply is perfectionism. The idea that you shouldn't be making mistakes and there's no room for error. Sense of urgency. I feel this all the time when my email updates because I have to remind myself that me sending this email is not going to save my life. And the idea that my inbox causes my heart to speed up is ridiculous at this point for me. But the sense of urgency that we have about getting certain tasks done, and then sometimes you go, I ain't saving a life. This email can wait. Defensiveness. And we're thinking specifically about when we are challenging uh, ways and systems of the institution that are harmful to us in terms of work. Quantity over quality. More. We produce more. We produce more. It's not about quality. Right. It's just about hitting this production note or hitting this production number regardless. Worship of the written word. And this is something that obviously in academia you can see. Right. The idea that it needs to be written down. It needs to be in a memo or it needs to be in an email um, or just written down for it to have any kind of real value in a workspace. Only one right way. Why? I get that there are some spaces and workspaces where certain procedures might require, because of safety concerns, things being done a certain way. But a lot of times we stifle in innovation and ingenuity because we insist upon it being done the way it's always been done, which is outdated and ineffective. Paternalism. The fact that people with power aren't questioned and shouldn't be challenged, that people who are lower in the hierarchy just deal with whatever decisions people with power make, and you don't have a right to challenge or to think about that. There's either or thinking that we see everywhere when we enact a dichotomy. It's either or. It's my way or the highway. There is no gray area. It's black or white. And again, that stifles innovation, stifles ingenuity. Another principle of white supremacy culture, power hoarding. We don't share power here, right? Those at the top and those in power want to make sure that they stay in power and we don't share power. The idea that we would share our power or be an ally or advocate for people with less power is something that we don't do. 
fear of open conflict. And again, by this point, you should be able to see how these different principles support each other. Because if there's fear of open conflict, it means that I cannot challenge, I cannot bring up an issue. And that's also related to another principle, right to comfort, that people in power have the right to feel comfort, the right to feel protected from some of these questions about their power and their decision-making. That the, that, and that also, again, connects to defensiveness, which is another one that we've talked about. So these are all interrelated. And sometimes you're experiencing multiple principles of white supremacy interlocking and shaping the workplace culture that, that you experience on a day-to-day basis. Other principles of white supremacy culture are individualism. And I'll connect that to the idea that I'm the only one which is in and of itself also connected to sense of urgency, right? If I'm the only one that the sense of urgency that I have on me to figure something out, to get something done, right? That puts me at a certain burden to show up at a certain level as well. Um, individualism is also the idea that we don't need to have people working in groups, that we aren't um, better as a collective, that individuals are working better on their own. Even the setup of our office spaces can send the same message of white supremacy culture, that you're here as an individual, that you aren't connected to the other workers in this building or in this company when indeed you are, and you're actually interdependent. Two other principles of white supremacy culture are objectivity and the idea that progress is only measured by bigger and more, even if that progress might actually be detrimental to the employees. I think that's something to also connect to the fact that capitalism is our economic system. And that's the idea here, that more profit might mean expanding, but at what cost to our workers, even if they're being exploited. Objectivity is something that I think, to be honest, will be the death of us in the workplace. The idea that you show up and you're professional and you have no emotions about anything. When you go to work, you don't feel. And to show feelings, to have emotions, is actually demonstrating a lack of professionalism. The idea that you're coming to work and you're turning off your emotions and being objective and remaining neutral is something that's quite frankly ridiculous because all of our experiences are subjective. We're human beings. We are using our senses to make sense of the world and understand what we're in. These principles of white supremacy culture that I'm sharing with you come from dismantlingracism.org. And one of the things I love that they talk about is they point out to us how white supremacy and white supremacy culture relies on us being fearful, fearful to address things, fearful to do what we're doing in this episode, which is name white supremacy culture as one of the big bad wolves that's making work something that we don't enjoy and that we don't want to do when it actually could be something completely different where we could actually feel valued by our workspaces. I mean, dare I imagine that we live in worlds where we actually want to go to work, where we want to be around the people that we work with, because again, these spaces and the work that we do reflect the values and the beliefs that we hold to be true and important for us as individuals and as a collective. Let's unpack them a little bit deeper by thinking about what Black women in particular experience in the workplace. At work, I've experienced a lot of bullying. A white colleague stated that at a hypothetical event, other faculty could take care of agenda items and I could get the coffee. My experience um, going out on maternity leave as a black woman, when I left out, my supervisor and I were lock and step, same page when I came back. 
there were a whole bunch of questions about, well, why was this in place and what were you doing with that? And truly, I felt like my reputation was being tarnished while I was away. White supremacy culture isn't the only big bad wolf. If we want to understand what Black women and Black people in general experience at work, we have to acknowledge that we are navigating spaces where multiple oppressions are trying to hold us down. This is an intersectional analysis to borrow from Kimberly Crenshaw's theory, and it also helps us to acknowledge that this is a multiplicative effect that Black women especially are navigating white supremacy and white supremacy culture. They're navigating institutional racism and individual racism. They're navigating white feminism. They're navigating tokenism. They might also be experiencing misogynoir. There could be some colorism. I mean, there's a lot of intersecting isms and oppressions that Black women have to navigate at work. You don't have to believe me. The data speaks for itself. Let me list off just a couple of things that we found in our research for this episode. Black women face a race and a gender gap, so much so that they're paid 67 cents to every white man's dollar. In 2019, it was reported that Black women lost about $39 billion because of the types of jobs that they hold. So some of what Black women are missing out on in terms of this race and gender gap are valuable workplace benefits that they can use to improve their quality of life. Things like sick pay, being able to take leave off, health benefits, retirement benefits, things that average Americans are using to better their quality of life and to think about what kind of life they can pre uh, prepare already for future generations. A survey conducted by the Gallup Center on Black Voices in 2020 found that Black women are less likely to feel like they're given respect in the workplace, they're less likely to feel valued, and less likely to feel that their co-workers treat everyone fairly. Black women are paid less than their counterparts, even when they have more education. And if there's one thing a black woman's going to do is to go get another degree. We are very well educated and continue to outpace other groups in terms of our um, educational attainment. Black employees, especially black women, report numerous ways where interacting with their white co-workers negatively influence their participation and identify challenges related to their task assignments and performance evaluations. Evidence from a new study suggests that black women do better when they're in teams with more black people than when they're in teams with more white peers. The turnover rate for black women decreases when they're around people who look like them versus when they are in groups with um, white colleagues. When the data says that Black women thrive when they have Black people as their colleagues versus when they've got white peers as colleagues, I think about microaggressions. Microaggressions are defined by Salazano and other scholars as subtle verbal and nonverbal insults directed at non-whites, often done automatically or unconsciously. And most of the times we talk about microaggressions to try to bridge the gap between intent and impact right? Where sometimes people are not aware of what they're saying and perhaps maybe doing that communicates that I don't belong here, that I'm not seen as worthy in this workplace. I shudder to think about how many of us go into workspaces where microaggressions are the name of the game. Brief little things that are, that are said that communicate that, you know what, mm, you're not as valued in this workspace. You don't have as much power in this workspace. We don't see you as an equal in this workspace. And again, we're thinking about and acknowledging that this is not something that white people have to experience. Tokenism is also another experience that black women might face, being the only one. 
And when you're the only one in the room, your presence takes on this oversized and almost overdeterminate power. If you're operating as the only black woman in a space, you might be feeling like you have got to represent yourself in a particular way, that you can't make mistakes. You've got to talk a certain way. You've got to dress a certain way. You've got to carry yourself a certain way. And some of it might be because you're thinking that if I mess up, there won't be anybody else that looks like me that walks through this door. I watched the other, the other black girl and I thought about that as part of the narratives that they were exploring in that show right? That the main character wanted to do a good job because there were very few people that looked like her. And that desire to do a good job and to pay it forward to your race is also one of the ways in which these institutions do us more harm. It also makes sense when we think about why people don't want to go back to work in a workplace. I saw a tone deaf video the other day that was telling, you know, folks to come back to work in an office because of the type of camaraderie and workplace culture that they would experience. And... The comments were like, you lie. You lie. When we think about these interlocking oppressions, dealing with racism, dealing with sexism, dealing with white feminism, dealing with tokenism, dealing with all of these things, I wouldn't want to come back to a workspace where that's what I have to navigate alongside meeting my responsibilities as an employee. It's all too much to bear. And in case we think that it's about the position you hold, one sociology study that I pulled acknowledged that, yes, position in the organizational hierarchy does matter for what you understand racism and discrimination in the workplace to be, and also your exposure to it. But it doesn't eradicate or eliminate it entirely. So yeah, you may be in a position of power, but that does not make you innocuous to the ways that racist systems and racist institutional policies could affect your work life. And I think that's some of what we're learning about what could have potentially surrounded Claudine Gay's experience and her ousting from Harvard. It also gives us an opportunity to explore whether or not she was a victim of this pet to threat phenomenon, which says that Black women are initially lauded for their achievements, but later face increased skepticism and resistance as they grow in their roles. And I think what also happened in Claudine Gay's experience is because she kept the stance that she, she held in this congressional hearing, she proved maybe a little bit unruly, a little bit out of the control of those who wanted her to tote a particular line for Harvard's sake. For those of you guys that are lacking context, there's a ton of articles about it. But a quick summary is that Claudine Gay was only in the position of president for less than a year. During that time, she was called to um, speak before Congress about anti-Semitism. And I don't think that her answers were supported by the board or higher ups above her at Harvard. While she may be president, there's still a hierarchy where she has to answer to folks. But then there was also this investigation that she had improperly cited sources over the course of her, what, I think 20-year academic career. And as a result of that, she needed to step down. Um, and she did step down. Claudine Gay's experience also gives us an opportunity to see a principle of white supremacy culture in action, perfectionism. One of the articles I pulled has this quote, why is it that Dr. Gay, that with Dr. Gay, there was this impulse to double check her qualifications, double check her dissertation, she said. Has that ever happened in the history of Harvard's presidency? Why was it that with the first black woman, there was an impulse to do that, but not with all these white male presidents? And I wonder what would be found if we actually dug some of this up, given already Harvard's racial past of this institution and many of these top institutions. What would we find if we started to dig up the ghosts 
of these past presidents. The fact that it happened with the first black woman president is again, not coincidental. And it's an example of the way that these interlocking oppressions work to make us vulnerable, even when we're brought in to, um, to, to fill in top positions of power. We're still vulnerable in ways that other groups are not. In the case of Antoinette Candia Bailey, I think about her attempts to address her decline in mental health that she brought it up to her job, to her workplace, that she was suffering from depression and that still, as a result, she is not with us today. A moment of silence for her life. We started out this episode by acknowledging that workplace culture is what we don't talk enough about. And that as much as we think about DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work, and as much as we want to transform our workplaces, if we're not actively thinking about the principles that organize workplace culture, then we are sending people of color and marginalized people into workspaces where they're going to experience violence and harm. And that's what the experiences of Black women tell us. Moving beyond these experiences of harm pushes us to consider this important question. How do we transform our workspaces into places that we want to show up at, that we feel empowered to show up as our full selves, and that we can all thrive and be adequately rewarded and paid for our service, our time, our labor, our effort, and how much of our lives we spend in service of work? If we can acknowledge that Black women's experiences at work point out the harm and the violence of institutional racism and discrimination and the interlocking oppressions that we face, then we also need to acknowledge that, yes, we can actually transform work into a space where we thrive, where we feel like we are valued equitably and paid adequately for the labor that we give and the time that we're given towards work. That is a world that I think is actually possible. So let's talk about that in this final point of the episode. Hey, everybody. My name is Corporate Erin. I'm the manager for the managerial logistics for Management Make Management. And I just kind of wanted to take some time to say hi to the Deep Sea community and kind of speak to some things that Dr. or Donnelly kind of wanted me to speak to. One of them being kind of like, what do I think about the current state of like workplace culture? You know, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I think a circling back, following up and closing the loop has kind of been driving the business forward. And the more that we can kind of acclimate people to corporate culture as it is, I think it's perfect. I think, you know, Kim Kardashian was right. A lot of people just don't want to get up and work. A lot of people don't want to do the work. So when I think about the company culture, it really just kind of depends on where you are. And if you're not into conforming, maybe you don't want to be there because that's gonna that's what's going to have to happen in order for you to kind of help drive the business forward as well. So when I think about you know, what can be added to the workplace to make it different, I would say more people being willing to adapt to what's already kind of been set up for them. Some of y'all recognize your girl, Corporate Erin, because she is hilarious and all she is doing is poking fun at our workplace culture. Those very same beliefs, norms, and values that seem so common to us, but when we unpack them, they're ridiculous. They make no sense. And white supremacy culture and its principles are a key culprit. 
So if we can acknowledge that this is not working and boldly proclaim that, then we can begin to activate our imagination to consider what modes of work are sustainable for the lives that we want to live. There's a book that I came across that I really loved. The book is Beloved Economies, Transforming How We Work by Jess Remington and Joanna Levitt. A big question they ask is this. Why are we trapped in exhausting, harmful modes of working and what is possible when we innovate out of them? It's no wonder over half of workers in the U.S. report being burnt out. Many of us pour, life, pour our life force into a week-to-week -week grind that leaves us feeling exhausted, unwell, and without the financial means to step off or even take a break from the frenetic conveyor belt. To top it all off, not only is work failing us humans, it's also devastatingly evident that the predominant economic system, which our ways of work uphold, is endangering other forms of life on Earth. From the very real effects of climate change, such as wildfires and droughts of unprecedented scale, to the related great waves of extinction, decimating countless species to depletion of our agricultural soils, the living world is crying out, this is not working. Here is the challenge. Are we ready to acknowledge that this ain't working either? And I want to bring up the narrative that Gen Z and Gen Alpha and millennials don't want to work. No, we want to work. We just got some different ideas and beliefs and assumptions around the type of work we want to do and how we want to be valued for it, right? I don't want to work in a place that devalues me. I don't want to work in a place where I've got to drag myself out of bed. And yes, the idea that I think I deserve that, why not? Why don't I deserve to go to a workplace that I actually want to be at? Why don't I deserve to work around colleagues that I actually value and can look at and go like, yeah, man, I respect you as a person. Why can't I reasonably expect that I'm going to be valued and adequately promoted and seen for the work that I do in a workspace? Why are those ideas things that we've given up? There's transforming work as a theory where we can think about, you know, all these great ideas, but then there's what does it look like in practice? And I think there are a lot of different avenues, but it really starts off with us keeping it real with ourselves and acknowledging that this isn't working. So it might mean going to HR, even if you don't think it's going to be helpful, but at least you're creating a record where a record hasn't existed about this person's microaggressions. You know, I can share my own stories of frustration where I was told that so-and-so isn't going to be held accountable. But you know what? I still want it in so-and-so's file. I want there to be a record for when the pendulum inevitably swings and the reckoning shows up for that person because it will, right? Maybe it's about advocating for a union. I think over the course of the last, what, two or three decades, the idea of a union has become unsavory for some reason. But when we think about workers' rights in this country, unions have been what have done it. Maybe it's about becoming more active in your union because unions allow us to get collective organizing power so that employers don't go, we can do whatever to employees and they've got no legal recourse, they've got no backing, they've got no advocacy. Shout out to Chris Smalls who was successfully able to organize Amazon workers into a union. I feel like every couple of weeks we hear about some freak accident at an Amazon, you know, at an Amazon um, plant or, or, you know, factory. But y'all, we actually do have power. And I know every episode I say it, but I say it because I want to make sure I believe it. But I think we need to believe it, too, because the types of changes that we're demanding are going to change our lives and transform them for the better. And we've seen unions do amazing things over the last year. 
We've seen the Writers Guild get a new contract. We've seen nurses win new contracts. We've seen a near strike from UPS get thwarted because UPS said, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to play in their faces. United Auto Workers, airline workers, um, healthcare workers from Kaiser Permanente. There have been a lot of gains by workers made in the last couple of years, and maybe it's not being covered in the news cycle for a reason. <laughs> Because we might actually get delusional enough to think that we can change all the things that we find as problems. Transforming work in this lifetime and not the next is something we can achieve. But we do have to tell the truth to ourselves that much of what we've accepted is beneath us. And if there's anything I've learned in my 37 years of life is when you settle for less, you get less than what you actually settled for. If I could imagine a workplace where a Black woman would thrive, it would have to be a place where she will not get burnt out. A place where there was pay equity. Remote, no stress, flexible. And also play, and also have banter, and also laugh and joke. Everyone felt comfortable sharing experiences, speaking up in meetings without fear of retaliation. Where people pour into you, so you're like, never running on empty. It's a safe space and it's very rewarding work. All right, y'all, we did a lot of work and heavy lifting in this episode. So let's bring it on down for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. Please make sure you're in a safe space. Trust that I'm not going to steal from you. And here's what I want you to do. Imagine your ideal work day. Now I know some of y'all like Dr. Donnelly, I don't dream of a job. I feel you. I don't either. But let's just for shits and giggles. Okay. What is your ideal work day? What time does it start? What do you wear? Who do you work with? Do you have to go somewhere to do it? How long are you there? How do you feel at the end of your day? Now hold that image. Open your eyes, come on back to where we're at, and then tell me, what do you learn from that visualization? Funny enough, those are some of the questions I ask students when we're trying to help them figure out what they might want to do. Asking you what you might want to wear how long you might want to be at a work day. Those are some of the earliest things I figured out about what kind of work I wanted to do. I knew that having to go someplace five days a week and see the same people would kill me. I have a job where I don't necessarily see the same people five days a week or have to go in my office every single day. And some of you might be saying, lucky you, girl, you are privileged. And to that I say, can't you also have the same choice and ability to make decisions over your work life? I think you can. Every workplace has its thing, but what if we were able to move from the place of our ideal workdays? I'm back to the beloved economies book because I really love the very expansive definition that they leave us with about work. They say that when they use the word work, they're referring to people devoting time toward a shared aim that requires them to create together and draw upon imagination. That is beautiful. And it doesn't have to be in the realm of a utopia. I believe it's something we can achieve in this lifetime and not the next. You know, we're always going to leave you on an empowering note here at the Deep Sea because that's it. 
It doesn't have to be this way. This episode on work touched just the tip of the surface, but I hope something in this conversation resonated with you. If it did, guess what? Like it, share it, review it. Tell us what you think about the deep dive question. We want to hear from you because as always, our goal here is to make sure you understand that sociology is for self-understanding and direction. And that direction is towards living in a society where we can experience well-being. See you next two weeks. Bye, y'all.